again, speak to us through your word. Give us understanding. Give us joy. Give us contentment. Give us commitment to live according to what we see in your book, O oh Lord. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come to the end of Philippians. You may recall that this letter, it's a letter written by a missionary to a church that he helped to establish, a church that has been supporting him. And this is kind of a missionary thank you letter, not unlike the thank you letters that we might be getting from missionaries that we support nowadays. Paul, the writer of this letter, is in prison, perhaps in Rome. And he doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. The Philippian church over in Asia Minor and Macedonia have heard about his imprisonment and they've grown concerned and they have sent him this letter or sent him a letter and sent him gifts to care for him uh, in his need. And Paul, knowing of their concern and knowing also that they are struggling with some of the same things, some of them are in prison because of their faith in Jesus, Paul writes them this letter to encourage them and to update them on how he's doing. You may remember that Philippians alternates between six sections. There's a, a section of pastoral encouragement and teaching, and then there's a little section of personal update. And so Paul bounces back and forth between encouraging and teaching them and giving them little updates on how he's doing. The section that we're looking at this morning is the last section, and it's a section of personal update. And it's really the thank you part of the letter, where Paul comes around to explicitly thanking them for their support. Now, we titled this series, Serious Joy, because we, we want to see that in this letter, in God's word, and, and given to us as Christians, is the possibility and the reality of a joy that is not fickle. Of a joy that doesn't sort of wave with the wind, but a joy that's rooted and upright and strong. A joy that can be had in every situation. Now, the text we're coming to this morning tells us that there's something that rides shotgun with joy, this kind of serious joy, and that something is contentment. Contentment. And so this section of the letter, even though it's a personal update, I think will speak very directly to our hearts this morning, to our situations this morning, and how we view them. Or to put it another way, I'm convinced that most people, Christian and non-Christian, are not as happy as they could be. And the reason that most people, Christian and non-Christian, are not as happy as they could be is because they build their emotional lives on their circumstances. And so if the circumstances are going well, then they feel like they are doing well, and so they're happy. If the circumstances are going poorly, then they're not happy. They're sad or, or disgruntled. In fact, most people think the circumstances determine the emotion. And so most people never even ask themselves the question if they could feel joy all the time or if they could feel something deeply that's contrary to their circumstance. We kind of reason 
it's like this for everybody. If something's not going right, then everybody is upset. So it's natural. But Christianity is supernatural. Christianity is not bound by the popular perspectives of everybody. Genuine Christianity is governed by a divine perspective, God's perspective. And that can be ours, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. So serious joy does not give in to circumstance. Serious joy builds not on changing life conditions, but serious joy builds on the unchanging truths of Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom of God. These are Paul's three passions. These are the three things Paul organizes his lives around, his life around. And this, these are the three passions, Jesus, the gospel, and the kingdom that we want to build and organize our lives around. And as we do so, we'll have this unshakable joy. We'll have this deep gladness because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Our main point this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. The secret to serious joy is contentment in this life as we trust God with all things. The secret to serious joy is contentment in this life as we trust God with all things. Or to put it the other way around, one of the ways you know you have serious joy is you also have deep contentment. Also have deep contentment. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to hang our thoughts on three points. Number one, great joy comes with great contentment. See that in verses 10 to 13. Great joy comes with great contentment. Number two, great givers produce great fruit. Great givers produce great fruit, verses 14 to 20. And then number three, great grace creates a great church. Great grace creates a great church, verses 21 to 23. The concluding part of the letter, verses 21 to 23, is Paul's final greetings. But the two paragraphs before that follow the same pattern. It begins with an appreciation for the Philippians' gifts. Then there's a clarification about what Paul does or doesn't mean. And then there's a declaration of dependence on God. So you'll see appreciation, clarification, declaration, and then the final greeting. So look with me in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. 
And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. With great joy comes great contentment. See the first thank you there in verse 10. Paul writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that now at least you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul does in verse 10 what he's been commanding and modeling throughout the entire letter. He rejoices greatly. In fact, he says he rejoiced greatly. He was very happy for the support. And it seems like he, he greatly rejoiced because of three things there that are going on in their giving. Number one, it took the gift some time to get to him. You see, he says, now at length. And number two, the gift communicated to Paul their concern. He interpreted it as love. You have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me. And number three, there was something that had been hindering that expression of love, had been delaying that love, and and Paul recognizes that whatever that something was, it's now been overcome. You had no opportunity, but now you have sent this gift. So Paul is kind of taking into account all that they have gone through and all that they feel in order to get this gift to him. And when he receives it, he rejoices. You ever had someone give you a gift that was so obviously meaningful and thoughtful that you just, you kind of melted? You felt warm and maybe you wept or maybe you just beamed? like this little girl I saw on a video on YouTube. She went to a book signing with Michelle Obama. She must have been about six years old. And she's standing in front of the table and she's just dancing like this. He just, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. She's just bursting. Paul is bursting here with gladness at, at this gift. But maybe he gushes too much because in verse 11 he's like, you got to walk it back a little bit, you know. He's like, let me, let me clarify something for you here in, in verses 11 and 12. It's like he gets too self-conscious. And he says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul wants the Philippians to know that while he's happy to have received their gift, he was not dependent on getting their gift. Not that I am speaking of being in need. 
In other words, don't feel bad, Philippians, if your gift took a long time to get here because I wasn't tripping. I wasn't shook. I'm in prison and all that goes along with that, but I ain't pressed. There's no dissatisfaction, no discontent in Paul, even though he was a prisoner and he really did need the support of others. But why? Why is he unshaken? Paul says the reason he was not shook was because he had learned in whatever situation he was in to be content. Now, how many of us can honestly and truly say we have learned that? To be content in whatever situation we find ourselves in. To be content means to be satisfied. Now, now some people are only content when their desires are satisfied. So some of us get hungry. Some of y'all get hangry. Right? Then we eat and our appetites are satisfied and we're content. My wife, after a hangry attack, sometimes leans back and says, I have dined sufficiently. I know it's safe to come out then. <laughs> but she was not content as long as she was hangry now. We in the car, so I'm hungry. Well, where would you like to go? I don't know, I'm hungry. Well, I could swing over here to Wendy's. No, I don't want no Wendy's. Well, maybe we can sit down at Outback. I don't want no Outback. Drive along a few more minutes. I said I was hungry. <laughs> We done passed 16 restaurants. She's just hangry. She's discontent till she eat. But Paul is talking about another level of contentment. Not just the satisfaction that comes from getting what you and I want. He says he's learned to be content in whatever situation he's in. Not, not just when it's going well, but also when it's going poorly. He spells it out for us in verse 12. Look there. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul says, good or bad, he knows how to be satisfied. And do you know that it's necessary for us to learn contentment? Not just when things are going poorly, but we also have to learn contentment when things are going well. You realize that some people have everything and they're still unhappy? They're still discontent? So what is this kind of contentment and how do we get it? Let me give you a definition of contentment based upon this paragraph. Contentment is the learned ability to remain happily satisfied in Jesus Christ no matter what is going on with us or around us, good or bad, because we trust God with our lives. I'll give it to you again. Contentment is the learned ability to remain happily satisfied in Jesus Christ. No matter what is going on around us or with us, good or bad, because we trust God with our lives. First, contentment is a learned ability. 
Notice the number of times Paul mentions that. Verse 11, he says, I learned. Verse 12, I know how. I know how. Verse 12, I have learned the secret. Paul's been paying attention in the school of life. No one is naturally content. This little three-letter problem called sin. No one is naturally content. Think about it, for example. Think about babies. Babies don't practice contentment. They learn early that loud discontentment will get them stuff. They start crying. They don't even know why. All they, but all of a sudden, a bottle showed up. They're like, oh, that's dope. Try that again. Start, start hollering again. Aye. And all of a sudden, somebody came in there and changed their bottom. Like, I feel fresh now. <laughs> Little baby powders all is good. They start, they start crying, ah, and, and all of a sudden somebody will come and carry them and, and shush them and rock them and comfort them. Babies learn to manage their world by expressing discontent. The problem is some people never stop being babies. And this is why we have that little phrase. This is why we have that little phrase, big baby. What are we saying? We're saying there's an adult person who is navigating life, expressing discontent like a baby, expecting that people are going to give them what they want or what they need. Now, here's the other thing. Some people act like that in their relationship with God. God, you didn't show up with my bottle fast enough. God, you didn't change this messy situation fast enough. God, it's some other stuff I want, some toys and things I want to play with, and, and I don't have it. Wah. While God is our heavenly father, he is not like your mama and daddy. He does all things well. He raises us right, which means we're going to have to learn how to be content. I love this from Jeremiah Burroughs. I'm going to quote him about eight times in his sermon, uh, his wonderful book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. If you've not read it, you owe it to yourself. Jeremiah Burroughs says this, to be well skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian. To be well skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment. Number one is the duty. We must learn it and do it. It is also, number two, the glory and the excellence of the Christian. You want to appear Christ-like and bring Christ's glory? Then we must learn to be content in whatever situation we find ourselves. But notice the second part of this definition. Contentment is not only learned, contentment is independent of circumstances. Paul says, in whatever situation, brought low, abound, in every circumstance, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and needs, this is where contentment gets hard, isn't it? There's There's a balance and a discipline required. When things are bad, contentment requires us to kill the flesh, to put to death the sin nature and walk by faith rather than by sight. And when things are going well, contentment requires us to remember God. What God's people often forget when things go well. See, we are prone to forget God when we're blessed, and we're prone to blame God when we feel like we're not. 
Forgetting and, and forget, forgetting and blaming reveal the same fundamental problem, a lack of contentment. So we must learn satisfaction independent of our circumstances. Jeremiah Burroughs again. To be content as a result of some external thing is like warming a man's clothes by the fire. But to be content through an inward disposition of the soul is like the warmth of a man's clothes. It's like, the, it's like the warmth that a man's clothes have from the natural heat of his body. I'll illustrate this. My, one of my older brothers, we called him Gino. Gino was a little bit different. Gino hated the iron clothes. And I mean, he would go out the house wrinkled. Drive my mama mad. Boy, I know those clothes. I know those clothes. And the, the more upset she would get, the more his eyes would kind of twinkle. And he always said the same thing. My body heat will knock out the wrinkles. He came home wrinkled too. But, you know. but there's a little Gino in Jeremiah Burroughs here. What Burroughs is saying, it is far better for contentment to come from the inside and the warmth in the outside of a person than for contentment to come from the outside, in which case it will never warm the inside. What we want is that quiet disposition of soul that works its way out in our lives and, and changes how we see and engage the situations we're involved in rather than the situations being changed and thinking that's going to do the good work we need done in our souls. Contentment doesn't work that way. It's independent of circumstances. But then number three, contentment comes from trusting God. That's what Paul says in verse 13. Look there. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Verse 13 is probably one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. It's, it's misquoted because it's taken out of context. Uh, people quote verse 13 as a motivational thought. You should might as well be on one of those motivational posters. They use it as a, as a stimulus to strive for this thing or that thing. But, but Paul writes this verse to explain why this thing or that thing has no effect on him. The secret of contentment, in other words, is trusting God for strength in whatever situation we find ourselves in. The problem is we think in situations of plenty, we don't need God's strength. The problem is that situations of lack, we think God has abandoned us. But Paul relies on God's power to keep him satisfied in Jesus in everything he faces. It's God's power, not Paul's. This is the secret of contentment. So, Burroughs defines contentment this way. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in 
God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. If you are content, you're glad that God is running your life. However your life is going, you know that he's good. You know that he's sovereign. You know that he loves you. You know that he has purposes for whatever's going on. And you relax in that. You, you not only submit to it, but you're glad about it. That's contentment. Amen. Not just submission, but also delight. Because there's a lot of times we're like, well, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and submit to this. But I ain't going to like it. That ain't contentment. That's discontentment. And so the question is, well, how do we learn this? I mean, four things for application real quick. How to grow in contentment. And the secret that Paul lays open for us. Number one, first, practice delayed gratification. Practice delayed gratification. Delayed gratification is a fancy word for putting off something that, that you want until you're actually able to afford it or handle it. Right? So you want those new, those new Jordans. Or maybe you want LeBron's new kicks. I don't know why. But you want that or you, you, you want a new car. You want a new house. But, but your money funny. You, you can't afford it. You know you also have to pay the light bill. But because you want delayed gratification, you go ahead and buy the shoes anyway and put yourself in a jam. You go ahead and buy the car and get the car note that you can't afford. That, that is not delayed gratification. That is impulse. That is being driven by desire. And if we're going to learn contentment, the first thing we have to do is to delay things, learn to delay things, maybe good things, until we can afford them, until we can handle them. And that's true not only of financial things, that's true of relational things and all kinds of other things too. This is why in the Song with Solomon, the, re, the, the repeated chorus in the Song with Solomon is, do not w- awaken love before it's time. Do not awaken love before it's time. There's some stuff you can't handle relationally until you've got some other stuff in place, like marriage, right? Do not awaken love until you're married, until you are relationally able and committed and in a context in which love is permissible and good and to the glory of God. That's delayed gratification. We have to learn that and then we'll be taking steps toward contentment. Number two, practice self-denial. Practice self-denial. See, beloved, there are some things that we should not delay there are some things we should just deny altogether. We just should never have and never do. Romans 13, 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. See, the, the whole problem is wanting, is desiring, is lusting. And beloved, Check this. It's possible to want too much. It's possible to want too much. The flesh, the sin nature, is never satisfied. It always cries out more, more, more. That's why we need to kill the flesh and put to death the sin nature. And beloved, wanting less is part of the secret of contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs puts it well. A Christian comes to contentment not so much by way of addition, 
as by way of subtraction. Contentment does not come by adding to what you want, but by subtracting from your desires. It is all one to a Christian, whether I get up to what I would have or get my desires down to what I have attained already, it is as fitting for me to bring my desire down to my circumstances as it is to raise up my circumstances to my desire. You see what he's saying there? The person who's mastering contentment, he recognizes that he can go or she can go in two directions. She can or he can get more to match his desire But they can just as equally say, let me pull my desire down to my situation. And they are rest satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. The world tells us there's only one way to be content, and that is to get more, to keep going up, to keep progressing, to keep laying hold to more and more things. Beloved, that is worldliness. And it's why people with a lot of stuff aren't any more satisfied than people who have nothing. You cannot feed that monster enough. It will only grow hungrier and hungrier. But the secret of contentment is learning how to raise or lower the level of desire. (coughs) To deny ourselves. To rest satisfied in what God has given us. Knowing that God is good. Number three, just building up to verse 13. Depend on God. If you want to grow in contentment? Let us learn to depend on God, to trust God. The Bible tells us apart from Christ, we can do nothing. He is divine, we are the branches. We get the sap of our life from being connected with him. We, we're not going to be content in our own strength. That's not what Paul is recommending here. So when he comes to verse 13, he says, listen, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We will only be content when we do all things through him who strengthens us. This means prayer It's going to have to be an active part of our spiritual lives if we're going to grow in contentment. This means the learning to pray as Jesus prayed in the garden. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Must be prayed with meaning and with faith and with intentionality, specifically about the things we want most. Otherwise, we're holding God or trying to Hold God hostage to our desires. When our desires are meant to be submitted to God's sovereign control. To submit our desires to God's control requires that we trust God. And maybe, beloved, it's the case if you struggle with discontentment. That you have come to believe in God, but you haven't yet come to trust him. You've come to accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for your sins, and you've come to accept the promise of eternal life, and you really are saved. But you don't want to hang that under different management sign on your life. You don't want to resign as the manager and trust God to be the manager of your life. Maybe that's the next level of growth and contentment for you is to pray and read the word 
and to so act as to trust God like he knows what he's doing with your life. Because he does. He does. Which brings us to the fourth thing, final thing. Rejoice in Jesus. (laughs) No matter what else is added or taken away from our lives, we always have Jesus. This This Savior is the greatest treasure of all. The Lord is the soul's satisfaction. As Augustine put it, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless, meaning discontent, until it finds its rest in Thee. Contentment. Rejoice in Jesus. We won't be content until we have that treasure that satisfies every nook and cranny of our soul. And the only treasure capable of that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Great joy comes with great contentment. Are you content? Are you pursuing contentment? Or are you rehearsing complaint? Great joy comes with great contentment. Point number two. Great giving produces great fruit. So in verses 10 to 13, we got a window into Paul's response to their giving. But now in verses 10 to, or excuse me, 14 to 20, we get a window into the Philippians themselves. And we get a window into how Paul interprets their giving and their support. The second thank you in this section is in verses 14 to 16. Paul wants the Philippians to know how he feels about them. It's like saying, I wasn't in need, made Paul then self-conscious about that. He didn't want them to have the wrong impression. He didn't want them to think that he did not appreciate their partnership in the gospel. So he acknowledges three things in verses 14 to 16. Number one, he acknowledges their kindness. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. In giving to Paul's need while he was in prison, They were identifying with Paul and, in fact, putting at risk themselves and their gifts to identify with Paul. According to Hebrews 10, 34, they were at risk of their possessions being plundered. According to the text that we read in Hebrews chapter 13, they were were at risk of being associated with them and, and arrested and suffering with Paul. And so Paul sees in this a kindness, a practical expression of love. And he wants him to know that anytime someone shares with you your trouble, they are being kind to you. They're being loving to you. A burden shared is a burden halved. And Paul says, look, look, I acknowledge that kindness. But number two, he acknowledges again their partnership. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And this is what Paul has in mind in Philippians chapter 1, verse 5, when he he rejoices with God in prayer because of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That partnership involved giving and receiving. They supplied Paul's material needs and Paul supplied their spiritual needs. They provided food and money and things and Paul provided the teaching of the word of God. And in that partnership, the gospel was going forward. Churches were being planted. The kingdom was being spread. Paul stops right here to acknowledge 
that they got in on the ground level. They got in when nobody else had heard of Jesus. They got in when there wasn't any other churches in Asia Minor. That they had with Paul a common vision to see the gospel go forth, and they, believing in Paul, supported Paul and the work of the ministry. From the first day, Paul says, unto now, when no one else in Macedonia supported this work, they supported this work. And then he acknowledges number three, their consistency. See that in verse 16? Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Paul had received rough treatment in Thessalonica, but even then they weren't afraid. They didn't shrink back. They sent him help again and again. They were all in with Paul. They didn't leave him hanging, but repeatedly gave to the mission. Beloved, these are three good missionary support principles for us as a church. We've wanted missions in our DNA from the start. And by God's grace, we've been able to support missionaries and short-term teams. And and these are good principles for us. Let us be kind to those we support. Let us get in early on the mission and have vision with the missionary for new work and expanding work. And let us be consistent and repeating in our offerings that those we support like Paul might be able to testify that we've had their back from day one. So we should be either those who go for the work of the gospel or those who give in this way for the work of the gospel. But that then again makes Paul self-conscious. So it comes to his second clarification in verses 17 and 18. Not that I speak, I seek to give, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In the first clarification, Paul didn't want them to think he was desperate or dependent on them. Now in the second clarification, he doesn't want them to think he desires their money rather than them. He says, not that I seek the gift. Paul was not a prosperity preacher. Paul was not pimping the church. Paul, as 1 Corinthians 9 makes clear, would rather work with his own hands than have people he's trying to reach with the gospel think he's trying to take money out of their pocket. He would set aside that right to make his living from the gospel in order to work so that the gospel would not be shrouded in misunderstanding. So he doesn't want any church thinking he's about the gift or the money. Well, what's this giving and receiving really about then? He tells us in verse 17. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What does that mean? Fruit is a word in the Bible that's used to symbolize the result of something, the outcome of something. Fruit is the crop that comes from a seed. So Paul sees their giving as a seed invested in gospel ministry. The fruit from that seed increases to their credit. That means it brings them a return on their investment. But still, what is the fruit? I think it comes in two forms. Number one is the work of the gospel itself 
as it spreads from place to place. They're, they're helping to make sure that lost people who will perish in their sins and be judged eternally hear the good news that God through his son Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for their sins and made a way of escape from judgment if they would repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior, as their God. Spreading that message is producing fruit. Churches are being planted. People are being converted. The Christian family is growing. But now this fruit, I think, has a second meaning. is It's righteousness in the Philippians' lives. Their giving is producing in them righteousness. Now to see this, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 13. Paul is in the longest section on Christian thinking about giving in the Bible in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. And in verses 6 to 13, he says some things I think are, are germane to the, Thessalon- to the uh, Philippians. He says this in verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That you may sometimes hear called the, the law of sowing and reaping. It is much abused by prosperity preachers, but there is a right way to understand this in the Bible. Amen. So whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In other words, if if you're giving as an act of worship, you should be doing that freely, not because somebody made you to. And you should be doing that gladly, not grudgingly. In verse 8, here's the promise. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You see what's happening there? We give in faith, and the text here says, our gracious God will make it so that we can abound in every good work. That we'll have what we need for every circumstance, and we'll be able with that to do good in every circumstance. Verse 9, as it is written, he is distributed freely, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians. Makes sense that when he writes a similar notion to the Philippians, he has the same thing in mind. That by great giving, there is produced also great credit, great righteousness in the people who give. Again, just to be clear, to distinguish this from some false teaching that's out there. Notice verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower, that's God. And the seed that we have to give, guess who supplied it? God. We we didn't supply it ourselves. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. Why? For sowing 
Not for your riches. Not for you to have a bigger house or a fancier car. Not, not for your prosperity in a worldly materialistic sense which that false gospel teaches. God will increase your seed for yet more sowing. And he does that. Why? To increase your righteousness. To increase your godliness. To increase the degree to which we look like Jesus in the world. Not the degree to which we look like some billionaire. Right? Great giving produces godliness. And so verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. That's the whole aim of the Christian partnership in the gospel. We give, we partner, some go, some give, so that the gospel goes forward and thanksgiving goes up to God and God's people grow in righteousness. So when Paul says back in Philippians, I was not seeking your gift but I was seeking your full credit. He's saying it ain't about the money. It's about your soul. And it's about your progress in righteousness. I love the way one preacher put it once. He says, God commands us to give, not to get money out of our pockets, but to get idols out of our hearts. And Paul is saying that in a more positive way. Verse 18. He wants them to know that the main one interested in their giving is God. He says there, I have received full payment and more. I'm good. I am well supplied. However, now notice who the gifts are actually for. So I am well supplied. He has received a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He wants them to know that what they've done for him is actually done for God as an act of worship. Paul is grateful, but God is glorified. That's what he wants them to see. And just as Paul's contentment was based on God's power in verse 13, the Philippians' giving should be based on God's generosity in verse 19. They ought to be freed up to give and to give generously because of the truth of verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in, in glory in Christ Jesus. Or remember how he puts it in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, the fact that God promises to supply our needs, that should promote joy and contentment. And that verse, verse 19, should answer the struggle I know some of you have had or felt during this entire sermon series. Because Philippians has been exhorting us to build our joy not on our cares, but on what? On our passions. And cares are those earthly things, good or bad, that, that require practical attention that many people get anxious about. The rent, the light bill, kids and how they're behaving, spouses, how they're behaving. And those things, those cares affect our joy. We, we look at the care. We predict whether the care is going to go 
poorly or well, and then that determines our emotional response. If it's going to go poorly by our prediction, we're sad, we're depressed, we're angry, we're frustrated. If it's going to go well, then, then we, we are happy and relieved and any number of positive emotions. But the whole while, if we're basing our emotions on the cares, then guess what's controlling us? The cares. And I've been saying in Philippians that Paul's strategy here is to anchor his emotional state not on his cares, but on something far deeper, on his passions, on the gospel, on Jesus, and on the kingdom of God. And the question that's been lingering for some of us is, what about my cares? Because they're real. If I don't pay the rent, I'm going to get a little pink slip. If if I don't get my child to the doctor, they're going to get worse. They're going to get sicker. If I don't address this practical matter, what, what, what am I going to do? What's going to happen to me? And he said to me, passions don't pay the rent. Passions ain't going to satisfy hunger. Passions won't address my health concern. And you're right. Your passions are meant to address your soul. That won't change your circumstances. However, telling us to focus on our passion, to develop a Christian passion, will keep us from worrying about the things we can't change, our circumstances. Here's how this works. We are to focus on what we can change, our hearts. And God will take care of what we cannot, our needs. The text says, God will supply every need of yours. So there is no need that God is not fully aware of. He's even aware of when we're calling some things needs that really ain't needs. There's nothing that's happening in our lives that God's not aware of. And there's nothing that we truly need in our lives that God cannot provide for. So that's the partnership. I develop passion for Christ and the gospel and the kingdom and God as a good father supplies my needs. I attend to my soul. God attends to his cares. Now here's the thing. God does all things well. And don't you know that at this point we should not slip into thinking that the way we think our needs should be met is how God ought to meet our needs. No, 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 beloved. God has many ways of doing many things and, and of doing more things than we are aware of at any time. I mean, I mean God can supply your needs according to verse, chapter 4, verse 19 in at least four ways. Number one, he may supply the need by providing that need directly. Providing that need directly. You need money for utilities. And out of the blue, out of the blue, some brother from church comes over with an envelope, says, you just on my heart. I just wanted to bless you. And God directly provides you money for the utilities. Or God may supply the need indirectly, indirectly. You need money for utilities and God provides you a job opportunity. So God gave you a job, which wasn't the direct satisfaction of the utilities, but through that job, He's going to provide for the utilities and many other things. So he can do it directly or indirectly. Number three, God may meet one need by supplying a totally different need. What does that look like? You need healing in your body. But God doesn't give you a miraculous healing. 
Instead, God gives you faith and strength and character, and you find yourself enduring the sickness. God provided a whole other thing that knocked down the domino of how you dealt with your sickness. Or number four, God may meet your need ultimately. Ultimately. He may finish all the needs and all the struggles of this life by bringing us into his kingdom where there are no more needs and are no more struggles. God got a lot of ways he can supply our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Don't you ever doubt it. Trust him. Believe him. You focus on your joy by developing Christian passions and you trust God to supply your need as you serve him. God's arms are not short. He can reach you and he can provide for you. It's not our job to tell God how to provide. It's our job to trust him. It's our job to build in such a way that our hearts are safe with him and that he's glorified. Verse 20, Paul says, now not my God will supply your needs, but he says, our God. The same God that Paul is trusting is also their God and our God. Our God and Father will receive glory forever and ever. Isn't that what we ultimately live for? We don't ultimately live to meet our needs. We ultimately live to bring God glory. And he will receive it as we trust him. So if you've been struggling with the tension between your practical cares and developing spiritual passions, again, here's the solution. Let God take care of your cares while you focus on your passions. The assurance in verse 19 is that he will supply every need that we have. Everything we need is in Jesus. What we need more of is Jesus. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Remember Matthew 6, Seek ye first my kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You ever notice the text never gives a second? Seek first and only the kingdom, and God will supply our needs. Which brings us to our final point. Great grace creates a great church. That's what we see in verses 21 to 23, the end of the letter, their final greetings. Verse 21, we got greetings from the missionary team. Paul wants every saint in Philippi greeted. The brothers that he refers to there is probably a reference to his missionary team. They also send their greetings. Then we see there that not only a great missionary team, but in verse 22, a great church family. All the saints in Rome greet the saints in Philippi, especially those of Caesar's household. Striking, isn't it? The gospel has gone from a Bethlehem stable all the way to Caesar's household. The gospel has traveled an interesting route through the backwater villages of Jerusalem, along the paved roadways of the Roman Empire, to pagan lands that have never heard of Jesus, to the religious capital of Jerusalem, and to the political capital of Rome. The gospel has survived angry mobs and cold prisons, shipwrecks and beatings. And by the end of this letter, the gospel has reached the anonymous everyday saints 
as well as servants and families in Caesar's very own household. And all of these people, from the apostle in prison to the people in the emperor's home, all of these people become saints of God, the holy ones, the ones set apart for the Lord, for his worship, for his service, to enjoy him. They've all become family in Jesus. The prisoner and the guard. The emperor and the nobody. At the cross reconciled and made one. We sang it in the hymn. The slave has become our brother. Oppression has been ended. And all of this because of great grace. Verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace is another word for kindness. Undeserved favor. Paul here in this wish prayer blesses the Philippians. He says, may the undeserved kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That your inner man might be comforted by the tenderness of the Savior. And it's in that grace that the church is formed. It's in that grace that the church lives. It's the grace of the gospel. As we end Philippians, it's important to note that you cannot stop the gospel. Sooner or later, it will greet you. Like right now. The message will come to you and you will have to decide what to do with it. Even right now. Jesus Christ is sitting in glory, preparing to return to gather his people. He has purchased the people by his own blood, the Bible says. That's a reference to his death on the cross where he was punished by God for our sins. Where all of God's anger was poured out on the Son of God instead of on us. In his love, he took our place and, and he suffered our judgment. He died. But three days later, God raised him from the grave. He, he was resurrected. He, he lives in glory and in power. And, and in that resurrection, God was saying to the world, I have accepted my son's sacrifice for you. And in that resurrection, Jesus provides eternal life, forgiveness, righteousness, joy, peace with God, reconciliation, hope, and the promise of living before the face of God in joy and love forever. That's the message Paul preached. That's the message that gave him joy. That's the message that makes us a church and the message that we preach to you this morning. The gospel has come to you. It's made its way from a stable in Bethlehem all the way to a high school in Anacostia. It's brought together people from various places in the world so that in this moment right now, you might hear the news that God loves you. 
And he has proven his love by sacrificing his son for your sins so that he would no longer be angry with you and no longer punish you, but so that he would welcome you and love you and make you his own child. And God calls you now, even right now, to confess your sins, to repent, that is to turn away from living a life without Jesus, and put your faith and your hope and your confidence in Jesus as your God, as your Lord, as the one who rescues you from God's judgment, that you might be born again and live forever in the grace and the love of God. That's the gospel. What are you going to do with it? Will you believe it or reject it? Rejecting it will lead to judgment. Believing it will lead to joy. Serious joy that no one can take away from you. Trust in Jesus. Live for Jesus. Become a Christian and discover joy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the message of Philippians. For what you have taught us over these last couple of months. For the ways you have spoken to us to both comfort us and sometimes to challenge us. The ways in which you've shown us more of what we have in Jesus. The ways in which you've called us up into higher joy, greater joy. And the ways in which you have sought to free us from earthliness and worldliness. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be our passion, that our hearts would be locked on you, that you would be at the center of all we think and say and do, and that, Lord, no matter what goes on in our lives, we would rest joyful and content that we have you and that you have us Nothing will separate us from your love. So, Lord, we pray, write Philippians in our hearts. Give us, O oh Lord, genuine faith, we pray, to trust you and to follow you and to rejoice in you at all times and in all ways. And we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.